What's up, Gumbo listeners? Demetrius Malbro here with another Data Protection Gumbo episode. And this one is titled The Magic of Open Source and Data Agility. And to drop some knowledge for us today, I have Jeffrey Molanas, Chief Technology Officer at Maya Data on the gumbo. Jeffrey is a dad of two trying to fudge storage within containers and also venting with karate when failing to do so. So gumbo listeners, Jeffrey discusses applications and how they have changed but storage hasn't. Some of the hardware changes around NVMe and NVMe OF and some programming language best practices. So sit back, relax, or pour up your favorite beverage while we get right into this episode. Jeffrey, how are you today? Hello, I am doing fine, thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice weather here in the Netherlands, so I can't complain. Uh, how about yourself? Uh, everything is going well. Um, nice weather here in the Atlanta area. Also, when I when I give you a phone call, make sure you answer so I can, you know, at least have someone to give me a tour of the city. Oh, absolutely. I will definitely do. Make sure you also check out the countryside because that's also very nice uh, as well. Yeah. Cool. We'll do it. So let's go ahead and jump into some questions for the Gumbo listeners. And once again, thank you for coming on the show. And today, let's talk a little bit about, you know, applications and just the way applications have changed lately. And application is definitely king of the data center, which it should have always been that way anyway. But uh, if you bring in storage and the way storage has been moving and matriculating across the last, you know, five to 10 years, it's changed a little bit. But I think it's also right at a precipice to actually kind of move along with the applications, if that makes sense. But it seems like someone forgot to tell storage to change along with the application. So can, can you give me your opinion on, on what that means to you, Jeffrey? Right. Yeah. So I think if you look at uh, the, the, the modern day applications and the way that they are built, you, you can see, or at least uh, I see that they are, are designed uh, from the get-go rather different uh, compared to, you know, let's say, 10 years ago. And obviously, the primary reasons of that is, is the, the fundamental technologies and the cloud-native approaches uh, that you see. So concurrency primitives are built within the languages. Uh, people don't have to juggle operating system threads in order to achieve concurrency. Um, so that's that's one side of it, the way that we write the software, the tooling that we use. Um, but also, the, the hardware has changed a lot in terms of uh, how many cores does your CPU have these days? And, and mm -hmm. um, it's it's you know, it's it's hard to find a CPU that has uh, a lower core count than four, let's say. Um, so that's also uh, one part of it. And then the final piece, for example, is also uh, the NVMe space and, and the networking. And in order to to really um, leverage that potential of that hardware, you need to need to change your software. And as people not necessarily change their software to pull out the new hardware, but just simply writing new cloud native applications. They're confronted with this new type of hardware, right? And then they want to have the full potential out of it. So, and once they do that, what you'll find then is that um, they built in this, these, these notions of um, high availability inside their applications with things like HA proxy, uh, load balancers, databases that shard and whatnot. And if you compare that to, you know, let's say 
again, 10 years ago, not all that long ago really as well, but it used to be the case that the application was a thing. It was it was one binary and it ran either on Linux or on Windows and it ran in a VM and that VM had a data store and that data store was sitting on a storage system. And if you needed more performance in your application, typically what happened was or the VM got more resources or you put an extra shelf with more IOPS underneath the database to so to speak. And that was roughly how things were scaled. And with cloud native, you see that that, that's vastly different or decoupled you add just more databases and the, the system will balance out itself. So that's a fundamental uh, change when it comes to that. And also, I think the people who actually manage the software, they, they are used to uh, being able to deploy things uh, rapidly and frequently. Um, and they are usually um, responsible for a small subset of the whole thing, really. So what I want to kind of circle back to is... Uh, a little bit just for me and also for the listeners, NVMe and NVMe, what is that, OF? Yes, NVMe over fabric, yeah, yeah. Over fabric, What what is that? I've never heard of that before. So NVMe is a protocol and NVMe over fabric uh, is, is the same protocol over a fabric. And, and the reason that it is a fabric is because it works over TCP uh, IP. Um, but it finds it finds its origin in the uh, RDMA and uh, InfiniBand uh, technology, um, and it also works over fiber channel. And so NVMe itself is is a protocol and uh, a protocol that was typically uh, or is typically used to um, address non uh, solid state devices. And the an interesting thing has happened is that it used to be the case that the CPU would be waiting for the storage devices to come up with the data that the CPU has asked for. And with NVMe, that's different. Um, it is in fact the case that the NVMe drives, not one drive, but multiple drives, multiple drives together um, can produce more load, if you will, than the CPU can handle. And, and that, that has never ever been the case. And this is really made possible through NVMe. And what is uh, so fundamentally different is usually you have a, a disk device connected with a cable to an HBA, um, so host bus adapter like a SAS HBA. And then that was sitting on a PCI slot and that PCI slot connected to the CPU. With NVMe, the HBA is gone. It's directly attached to the PCI bus. Um, so, uh, and you also see that if you look at the at the software stack, you usually had SCSI and iSCSI and whatnot. And with NVMe, this, this whole SCSI layer is completely gone. It has been replaced by something else, obviously, but less is more, I would say, in this particular case. And so NVMe is, is really uh, a big market and it is really drastically changing um, how you can, or how fast storage is. And, and a single SSD can now do, or an NVMe SSD to be exact, can do half a million IOPS easy. So the, cha the challenge is then obviously is like, okay, if I have a half a million IOP device, how do I get that potential out of the device? And that ties back into the applications have changed uh, in telling storage about it. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm not having a lot of conversations about the infrastructure anymore like I used to. Everything is, is more of an, on a software layer. And um, it, it, it kind of took me back a little bit, Jeffrey, to talk about, you know, host bus adapters and fiber channel and fabrics and NIC cards and, you know, the, that entire 
kind of infrastructure layer, the hardware layer of things. And you take me back to my backup and recovery administrator days back, you know, 10, 15, almost 20 years ago. I, I had some horror stories to come to mind, but I, I will save them for, for another time. Also right now, so I, I just moved over to Puppet, uh, IT automation side of the house. And so I am becoming very familiar with, you know, infrastructure as code and CICD pipeline and uh, uh, DevSecOps and dealing with developers and, you know, programming languages and Ruby, Ruby and Python and Go, you know, those different types of things. Now, one thing that I, I stumbled upon was Rust, R-U-S-T. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I did a little research on that and found out that hundreds of companies around the world are using Rust in production today. You know, and it's supposed to give, I guess, a fast and low resource cross-platform solution. But I've also found out that it's it's uh, it's running things like Firefox and Dropbox and Cloudflare. They all use Rust. Do you have some experience with that? And and and, and if you do, can you can you give me, I guess, your interpretation of Rust and is it a good language? And I think you guys may also be using it too for um, some of your products. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for the, the Maya Store uh, product that I'm working on myself, uh, we use uh, uh, Rust uh, there as well. And one of the, I guess, uh, fundamental differences between Rust and other languages is, is that it, is, uh, it has this notion of borrowing and which basically means that there is always a owner of a particular uh, piece of data. And you can have, uh, and only the owner can have uh, writable or mutable access to it, as they say. And if you, have, if you have somebody who has mutable access to it, nobody else can have mutable access to it. It sounds like, oh, rather really simple and trivial, um, but the difference is, is that this, this, this borrowing mechanism is enforced during the actual development of the software. So it's not a runtime uh, thing. It is enforced during uh, compilation and, and things alike. Um, and then there are uh, other things, uh, as you mentioned already, a lot of companies are, are using it and it's like produces very fast code. And that is because it is like, I, I think you could say what, what, what C is to assembly, Rust is to C. So you have C that compiles into assembly code. And so C provides a higher abstraction than assembly. But C is very low level still, if you would compare it to Rust in terms of having the ability to have um, interesting data types like a result, where a result is always one or the other. I think they call that uh, algebraic data types. Um, and these things are, are not found in C. So you Rust is a level up than, than C, but when you compile it, it, it to the machine level, it is almost in certain cases faster, in other cases not as fast as C. So you get high abstraction uh, without pay, paying the cost. Um, and, and, and with these borrowing features, this mutability aspect of it within the language, um, what you see is that potential memory uh, issues like, for example, Heartbleed, which was a very good example of, of memory that was uh, still there but not referenced. Uh, these issues cannot happen by virtue of, of the borrowing system 
yeah, that's a little bit about what what Rust brings to the table. Uh, apart from the fact that learning a new language is always fun because it's also a functional language. Yeah. Um, and and that's also uh, an interesting thing to experience. So you you just made a comment about I guess Rust writing in Rust makes it a little more secure. Is is that what I captured from you? Yes, 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 exactly. How does that happen? Is is it is it based upon how you're able to construct or or write in that language that makes it secure? I'm a little confused on that. Yeah. So when when you when you start writing in in in, uh, in code in Rust, you'll find that uh, the tooling is very um, I would say sophisticated. So okay. and, and you start out with a very simple thing, uh, printing hello world. Well, you know that's that's relatively easy, but for example, if you want to create a uh, a linked list in Rust, that is almost like an academic exercise. And the reason for that is that a linked list, by definition of it being a list, has a uh, has two references pointing towards it because the previous and the next both are connected, if you will, to that um, item. And that already violates the rule of Rust, right? Because you can only have one owner. So and and so these conceptions are are you know followed all the way through during compilation time. So while you are writing the code, you have to think about this notion of okay, who owns the data right now, and is the data that I'm having do I have immutable access to it? If I have mutable access to it, it Rust ensures that I am the only one that can mutate it. And there is no other language out there, or at least as far as I know, probably some other have spun off on the ideas, but there is no other language out there that gives you the guarantee that you are the solely and only entity that mutates that data at that point in time. And, and, and it enforces that during compilation time. And that and that makes things easier to, to, to get. I mean, you can still write, you know, wrong code in Rust, obviously. Um, but these these type of uh, issues um, should be uh, almost um, non-existent with, with Rust. And you, you know what this reminds me of? And as you were speaking there, I, I thought a little bit about blockchain. Yeah. And, you know, cryptocurrency. And it popped in my head. It's like, wow, it's almost like like writing like a blockchain type to some type of uh, ledger, and I don't know. I don't know if there's a correlation between the two, but you oh, you see, that, you see that a lot of uh, um, blockchain, uh, let's say, implementations make use of Rust. Yeah. Oh, they do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm smart. I am smart. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And so, and when you relate that back to storage, right? It's like, okay, so why would you use that type of language then to build storage or backup systems yeah. or what have you? Is that if you look at data, it's also very important that you know there is only one thing writing to the data at any given point in time. And, right. and if you look at storage systems that I've worked on in the past. And you know these systems fail, obviously, and, and you know you need to figure out why they why they fail. And 99% of the time, it was use after free, as they say. So we're 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 saying somewhere in the code we are done with this data, but somewhere some other thread at some other part of the CPU, let's say in the in the cache, didn't get the message. So then it references that data, which we freed, and then it blows up because there is no data anymore. And um, there's a very interesting talk from, from Tony Hoare that talks about the billion dollar mistake um, 
of where, where he talks about this this thing called null in in, in C and and Go for example mm -hmm. calls it calls it nil, um, and that thing doesn't exist in Rust. There was always uh, there's always a value. And how do you spell Tony's last name? H O A R E. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out definitely. So you you mentioned you know backup and and storage a little bit. So let's let let's talk more about backup now. Now I'm I'm not sure if Rust has a correlation to I guess backup and maybe there is a correlation because you you probably can you know write or use that language to create uh, just as you've done uh, I guess with Maya Store. Um, but I guess how does that impact backup and restore if if any and, and do you have any like other products that actually kind of plug into the the backup arena and and if you do could you talk about that a little bit for the listeners I don't think necessarily that the language in this particular case has has some something you know to do with 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 the backup and restore other than it it it, it you know it implements uh, the actual thing itself but other than that the language is 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 not r really relevant the, the the thing that is relevant i think um and you know, would love to hear your thoughts on that as well is that if you take a nvme device and given that it is extremely fast what would that mean when you talk or develop a new backup solution for your product. And what I mean with that is, if you look at you know, the, the, the bigger existing storage companies out there, they all have this form of, let's say, a, a lock structured file system or, or uh, some form of continuous data protection that allows them to basically in batches write data out the disk and you know if that fails they are able to roll back and the reason they want to do that obviously is like if you need to rebuild your data you know that's even before you reach out to the backup of course but uh, if you want to rebuild your data um it's like how long does that take because we have i don't know how many terabyte drives are do we have these days and if they're rotational it's going to take a long 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 time to rebuild an eight terabyte drive right and so if you have a big storage array with 100 drives in them how big is the chance that you lose two of two of them at the same time so this this becomes a rather an interesting problem now if you compare that to to these cloud native applications where the individual data sets uh, are relatively small so instead of having one big database of a petabyte let's say you have multiple smaller databases of a couple of gigs and um, so you still need to rebuild the whole thing and, and whatnot so that's still there but if you look at nvme for example and it has this point-to-point -point copy support where this the NVMe drives communicate to one another directly sending data without the CPU being involved. That goes extremely fast. And if it is so fast, do you still need these very complicated and sophisticated algorithms that try to stay consistent because the rebuild is so expensive? Or would you say, get rid of the complex algorithm make it simple and if it fails i can rebuild a 200 gig drive in 30 seconds right because that's that's like the speeds that we're talking about right it's like it's insanely fast um and so these these things 
come to mind. Um, and then there is obviously for, for the backup system in, in, in MyStore specifically what we do is um, one thing that you always need to make sure is that if you have a, uh, if you take a backup, that the backup is at the very least file system consistent. Because the last thing that you want to do is do a restore and then mount a volume and then all of a sudden file system check kicks in or, or scan disk or, or whatever it's called on, on Windows these days because you're already on the clock, right? And so you want to avoid that. So having a file system consistent snapshot is really important. But in order to do that, you need to instruct the file system or, or the operating system rather that you are about to take a snapshot and that the operating system needs to do whatever it needs to do to take that snapshot. Uh, prior to that. And um, so what we've done in, in Maya store, we, we use the NVMe uh, admin queue, as they say. So you have several queues. You have a submission queue and a completion queue and an admin queue. And the admin queue, as the name implies, allows you to send out administrator commands and pass-through commands and whatnot. So what we do is we use, on the client, we use a very simple pass-through command and we send that to Maya store. And then Maya store sends that command uh, fans it out to all the replicas that need to need to have it, and then we 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 take the snapshot at the uh, at the storage layer. But before that, we ask the operating system to freeze, and I think it's thaw uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, the file system. So if if you put that in in a Kubernetes perspective, once the developer writes, I want to take a snapshot, kubectl apply. We freeze the file system, send the admin commands to the replicas. The replicas take the snapshot, come back to the uh, the CSI plugin, and then uh, we resume operation. Um, and and so that's that's how we one of the ways that we use uh, NVMe over Fabric to to do these type of things. Um, okay. So yeah. So you 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 mentioned Kubernetes, which is the like hot word <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, how do you protect that? that uh that data i guess the data that's that's uh inside of the cluster or that you know kubernetes is using to to kind of run the application how do you protect that do you have a separate product for that or you use the same thing the, the thing is is that i guess it's always been the case to a certain extent but um, in particularly in in the kubernetes environment just backing up the application data will not give you back a running infrastructure again so it's or maybe you back up the data plus the infrastructure, if you will. So, um, and Kubernetes has has all kinds of um, resource definitions, and you can create custom resource definitions. And they have built-in objects like nodes and, and and deployments and whatnot. And and these things represent a certain state and, and the desired state, to be exact. And and um, so, if you want to, if, let's say, if you have a Kubernetes application that consists out of a database, a web server, let's say a caching layer, right? You need to back up all three of them. Obviously, from a data standpoint, the only thing that really matters is the database, but the database on itself is also useless. You need to have the other three, right? So if you back these things up, you need to back up the whole thing. And so for that, we, we have a product that we're actually uh, working on right now uh, to to announce in oh yeah 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 uh, kubecon yeah yeah i say kubecon and and kubectl so it's, it's called kubera protect where we where we you know look from an application perspective it's like what is it that we need to back up such that when you do the restore it's like the whole thing uh gets restored and if you 
pull that further, the, the most difficult thing of, of backup and restore is in fact the restore, right? Making a backup is simple. Doing a restore is much harder. But once we get this right, we could, you could also use it as a migration path where you go from cluster to cluster. Um, if, the, if, the, if the backup and restore process is fast enough that it almost becomes quote unquote instance, you also get this mobility aspect uh, with the data. And, and that is, I think, uh, also really important because some say that the, the, the new public uh, cloud providers are the new proprietary, right? And, and you need to be uh, wary of the fact that um, you might need to move. So yeah, uh, I, I guess one one other question on that, like as, as you were talking, also I, I thought of um, casting. Have you ever heard of casting? I'm sure you have. Yes, I have. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. The whole yeah. acquisition with Veeam, and you know, how does I yeah. guess what you're developing is I guess how is that different from from casting? I don't know if there's any similarity or, or differences between I guess what they do um, and and what the product you're developing does. I think, truth be told, there is some overlap, but that that is not necessarily intentional in the sense of um, because we we are you know, the, the storage company in, in in the sense that we we focus on on the storage aspect of it, um, and we don't necessarily care about the backup in the sense that in order to have users see how useful and that it is indeed possible to run stateful workloads in 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 the cloud because that's like the the, the million dollar question, right? It's like, yeah, who uses Kubernetes? And people put their hands up and who uses Kubernetes in production? And then little, few people do that. And then in production and stateful workloads, and it's like, yeah, it's like you're talking to the void. And because it, it's rather complex and, 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 and because you have all these moving parts. Um, so with, with, with one of the offerings that we try to give is like, okay, so you, you want to have this Kubernetes cloud type look and feel, but in your own data center, um, because for various reasons, one of those reasons could be performance, right? Because if you go to the cloud performance, although it's getting a lot better, but performance is, is you know still an issue, then obviously you have the CPU vulnerabilities in there that get mitigated. But nonetheless, it's like, yeah, I'm not so sure you want to have banking system A and banking system B to be in the same infrastructure, you know, be it cloud uh, or not. It's like, you, you never know. You want to have the, 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 the look and feel of the cloud, let's say. You want to have the Kubernetes system, so so that's that's there. Then you want to have the Amazon GP, uh, Google Persistent Disk type-like storage. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, that could be Maya store, right, among others. Uh, but um, but then, okay, so what about backup and restore? So it, it, it's, you, you need to have, have an answer to the problem, um, and uh, and then we find that a lot of people have, you know, they 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 try the stuff out. They want to try out the YAML files, if you will. So they're in their editors, creating PVCs, setting up replication and individual properties of these persistent volumes. But once they've done that, once they've vetted the applications, like okay, this works, they never want to do it again, right? Because they they just test you out. And, and that's that's the persona, right? The developer persona. They test you out. They like it, and but then you know it needs to go at scale, and they prefer to have like a portal, SaaS portal, be it on-prem or as a service, doesn't really matter. And from there, they just want to be have. Okay, so I just want to click and back up, right? So um, that's what we're trying to offer. It's like it's like the like the end-to-end -end ride, if you will. And it, it, it's 
maybe it's fair to say that it's a typical storage uh, mindset, right? Where you have, um, if you look in the past, where if you bought a, a big storage system from storage vendor ABC, you get the whole plugin infrastructure, the monitoring and the backup tools and the restore tools and the best practices. And so we're not trying to emulate that, but we do, do recognize the fact that people see a lot of challenges in going from uh, of going towards cloud native applications and and giving them the ability to to you know to do do it full circle uh, to so to speak is, is is something that we're trying to to help them with. I guess one one final question is I guess around your philosophy of of building uh, let's say an open source type community around I guess your products or services and I, I think I've seen seeing that as, as something that you guys do. Well, what's the importance of leveraging uh, an open source community to, to build products and services? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Is that open source has become the norm, uh, whereas, uh, you know, not too long ago it was perceived as, you know, the hobbyist markets and, and whatnot. And these days people want the ability to, to be able to, to look inside the code and, and what's going on. Um, so having having a community around that project, what that what that instills in people is a certain amount of reassurance that the project is not being developed by this, you know, one person in the attic. Um, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And so what you can see with the Cloud Native Foundation, among others, uh, for which we are uh, right now in Sandbox and we're going to the next stages is, uh, with that as well, is that it gives some reassurance that, you know, if you use this this open source project, which has all the open source benefits, you can be assured that for a certain extent, to the extent possible, it has been vetted by you know, the, the Cloud Native Foundation, which is tied to the Linux Foundation and things alike. Um, so so that, that that's one aspect of it. But at the same time, it's also important to obviously um, solve a problem. And it is my personal experience that if you solve a problem through open source software, the community will organically show up from a developer to developer standpoint, obviously. Um, and I think that that is key, is that you need, need to solve a problem. You need to solve the problem properly and efficiently. And then people will start using it because all things aside, this it, it works and that's what really matters. And then the complexity to, to maintain and, and fine tune the open source software, that's where the, you know, the companies that make money on top of open source software come in. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Rolling into the the closing gumbo question, and, and this is not a technical question. I guess what would you tell your 16-year-old self if you had an opportunity to travel back in time to secretly change your destiny? Yeah, well, I think, you know, all things considered, I'm, you know, I hope this doesn't come across as too arrogant, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with how I turned out to be in the sense that I, I think that, you know, I'm certainly not without faults, but I'm not a not a bad person, I, I, I would say. So to that extent, I think I would probably tell myself is like, don't hesitate too long and don't think about too much about what if it goes wrong, because I, I, I think in retrospect, looking at myself back in time, I've been doubting certain things. Should I do A or B? And because of the doubt, I didn't do anything. And, and 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 I, I would probably and I would probably t tell myself to to not study 
uh, anything related to computers at all. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew you were a natural. You don't, you don't yeah. even have to um, pick up a book. It just naturally flows through your veins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate that answer. Um, it was it was a definitely uh, an, an honest answer. And I can relate to that one as well, because I would go back and tell myself, you know what? You know, stop beating yourself up. You know, just love life and enjoy life, right? Instead of yeah, having so absolutely. much stress around. Oh, I need to, I need to achieve this by this date, and yeah, all these different things, right? The the stresses that you know millennials put on themselves now, and some of our children today. You know, I can't even imagine having a an iPhone back when I was 16 years old. Oh, yeah. And having all of that computing power at my fingertips. When I was 16 years old, I think I had to you know, stay in the house in order to ensure that if a potential girlfriend would call me, that I was there mm -hmm. to answer the phone. Wait by the phone. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I remember me sitting in, in, in the hallway because I didn't want my parents to hear what I was saying. <laughs> because I had <laughs> <laughs> some privacy here, please. Um, and, you know, and, yeah. and, so, and that's so different these days. And um, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think that I, a lot of benefits are uh, because of that, but at the same time, I think a lot of the romance is lost. And, and my kids, for example, will probably not even know what a dollar is in the sense of the physical form, mm. right? Because every everything is wirelessly paid these right. days. So it's uh, definitely yeah, yeah. Well, all right, Jeffrey, uh, it was a pleasure having you on the gumbo, and uh, this this is going to be a like a, a really awesome episode. And I'm I'm thinking of a title right now. I think I have the perfect title uh, for this episode. So thank you for for coming on the show. Is there is there a way that you would like to I guess share with the listeners how they can reach out to you, maybe on social media? On Twitter, uh, uh, I am. Uh at Jeffrey Molinas, so um, uh, so just my first name and last name, no, no special aliases there. Um, so people can reach me. I think that would be probably easiest uh, if they want to, you know, whatever they want to ask. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the gumbo, and you have a fantastic week, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.